Welcome back, friend. I'm glad I didn't scare you off. I'm guessing if you've come back, you want to hear more of the tale, and I'm not in a mood to disappoint. If you recall when we left off, tragedy, like an old record stuck on repeat, found the Gracie family yet again, leaving Yale, the young Gracie heir, orphaned and alone to be raised by his grandmother in that monolithic house on the Hudson. How will Yale face the future as he grows into his manhood? Is the measure of a man what he can gain and take for himself? How high he can make his family name ascend? Or is it the many lives he can touch? The family, once lost, he finds anew. Or is it something far more grim? At this point in the story, I feel I should mention that from here moving forward, thanks to the rapid modernization that began to spread like wildfire at the dawning of the Industrial Age, records and accounts following our story greatly increase, allowing greater detail and hopefully a better understanding of the family's ultimate downfall to come. In the years that followed, and despite a rapidly changing world, Gracie Shipping Company managed to stay afloat and even thrive as trade regions flipped back and forth between regimes. In 1798, Yale began to linger around the shipyards more and more, and before long he had befriended two other young men, Gallius Zarkov, a Moldavian gypsy, and a man by the name of Jefferson, a short-tempered immigrant from Bristol, England, with an unrivaled ambition. Soon, the young Gracie felt the same pull to the sea as his father, but decided to go down a different, more lucrative path than the Navy. In 1799, Gracie went south with his compatriots to reclaim the shipping company's footing in New Orleans. While there, he allied himself with two young French brothers by the name of Pierre and Jean Lafitte, and established a smuggling route with them. And so, the double life of Yale Gracie began. By day, he was the charismatic businessman and toast of New Orleans, but by night, he secretly became the swashbuckling kingpin of New Orleans' criminal underbelly, an intricate web woven out of deceit and years of careful planning between him, Gallius, and Jefferson. In the years that followed, his alter ego was given the colorful moniker of Captain Blood by the local law enforcement. He has made a complete mockery of my authority and of law enforcement throughout the parish. His actions have resulted in the loss of over $33,000 worth of goods, not to mention four ships. And more frustratingly still, we know so little about him. I've heard tell that he may not even be one man, but several working in unison. Mark my words, if this Captain Blood is not dealt with soon, I fear this pirate may undermine our burgeoning state and put our city in a very precarious position. Mayor de Boer, 1803. As time passed, though, Yale began to take leave of New Orleans for extended periods, traveling back north to visit Elizabeth Henshaw, a Bostonian socialite whom he met several years prior at a gala. 
This is where things began to get complicated between the three young men. While Gallius stood by and supported his friend, Jefferson felt differently. While he was indeed no stranger to the needs of the heart, journals of his suggest that he felt somewhat betrayed by Gracie, that his new entanglement was pulling his friend from their lucrative work. It was no secret that he often felt inferior to Gracie by his class, projecting his insecurities of his upbringing on him. This led to several rows between him and Gracie over the years. Nevertheless, in 1806, in the still glow of the St. Louis Cathedral, Yale wed Elizabeth. They settled in a home along Dauphine Street, Elizabeth bearing a daughter soon after, whom they named Martha. It was at this point that Yale knew that if he was to live a life, a life where he and his family could live safely, Captain Blood had to die. Yale set out to stake his place amongst the elite of New Orleans, buying up a large plot of land on the outskirts of town, not very far from the remains of the childhood home he was forced out of all those many years ago. From there, he began to construct an opulent mansion of wrought iron and alabaster columns. For now and always, this would be the home of the Gracies. At a back alley tavern one night, he gathered Gallius, Jefferson, and the Lafitte brothers and told them his intentions. Gallius was supportive as ever, and John offered up a toast to his new mundane life. Jefferson said nothing, but quietly stood up and left. That night, it was said that Jefferson journeyed deep into the bayous to find the one they called Desponia, the Witch Queen. Historically, very little is known about this figure, as she was very reclusive and subject of many rumors and legends amongst the swamp folk. In one notable tale, a wicked man came to her seeking revenge on a spurned lover. He asked for a spell so that his former lover would never find another that would hold a candle to him. Imagine his shock the next morning when he found himself turned to a waxy living candle man. But of course, those are stories for another time. Whatever the case and whatever was said, Jefferson emerged from that bayou the next day with only one thing on his mind killing the Gracies. What follows next is an excerpt from the personal journal of Yale Gracie, dated November 11th, 1807. It had been quiet for some time. We had just finished supper when a courier arrived, leaving a note. It was from Jefferson, South Docks, 8 o'clock. I met with Gallius at the Old Sparrow Tavern and we quickly made our way to the rendezvous point. As we neared, Gallius began to feel as if something was not quite right. While I did feel that the meeting was a tad abrupt, I hadn't given it too much thought. But as we drew closer and closer to the dock, a look of supreme consternation clouded my friend's often jovial complexion. When we reached the dock, we found Jefferson waiting at the end donned in his hat and cloak. I recall at that point, Gallius whispering to me, be on your guard, brother. We approached Jefferson at the end of the dock, but he didn't turn from the water. I asked him why he had called us here, but he began spewing the most vile untruths that I was abandoning him and everything we had been building together over the years. 
that there was much more money to be had, and I wanted to leave him destitute, just like every other fop that he'd come across. I tried to console him, but as I reached to touch his arm, he quickly turned, revealing a blade hidden beneath his cloak and sliced my arm. He screeched as he flung his sword at me, exclaiming that he would not be put in his place by another loathsome aristocrat. Thinking quickly and having no means of defense, Gallius and I both grabbed what pieces of wood we could find to fend him off. In spite of this, Jefferson quickly cornered and disarmed me. He had raised his blade, about to end me, when he stopped and dropped to his knees with a thud. It was only then that I noticed that Gallius had hastily found an axe and implanted it in Jefferson's back. Despite this seemingly mortal blow, Jefferson let out a blood-curdling cackle that haunts me even now. He began speaking in a tongue I had never before heard, but I sensed that Gallius had, for his eyes widened with an intense fear. Without a word, Gallius grabbed the axe from Jefferson's back and began hacking in his neck until it had been separated from his body. It was at this point I noticed how much blood I had actually lost from my wound and began to feel faint. The last thing I remember before going completely unconscious is the image of Gallius shoving the beheaded corpse of Jefferson into the water as his head still stared back at me. I woke around two hours later. Gallius had taken me to a healer woman he knew, and I must say, she was a master of her art, because the cut in my arm was little more than a scratch when I came to. Gallius explained that Jefferson was speaking the tongue of a dark magic, though he was unsure where he had learned such a thing. He said that if he hadn't acted when he did, Jefferson would not only brought himself back from the brink of death, but also cursed not only us, but every generation of our families that would follow. His head was removed to break this magic, and hidden to ensure that he would never return, forever trapped between this world and the next. It was then that we made a solemn vow to never speak of that night, or the location of the head ever again. As with so many things in life, darkness gave way to dawn after that night, and Joy found a home at Gracie Manor. As a sign of thanks for saving his life, Yale had Gallius bring his entire family to the mansion, for there they would always be able to call home. Gallius quickly collected his wife and seven children and brought them to New Orleans. The Zarkov clan quickly took up their own wing of the home and showed their gratitude at every turn to Gracie and his family. Whether it be Big Sergei lighting the lamps of the halls to brighten even the most dreary days, Anya performing the most beautiful music on the piano in the evenings, or little Leota, the apple of her father's eye, quietly reading nursery rhymes to the babies. The spring of 1812 brought new life into the house as Elizabeth bore Yale a second daughter by the name of Sophia. It was a golden time and on that sprawling estate under the lush willows and amidst the laughter and games and week-long banquets and balls, life truly was serene. But this did not mean the Gracies were at last free from tragedy. 
The winter of 1820 was abnormally hot, tilting nature off its axis and leaving nothing feeling quite right. Trees that should have slept dormant rose and fell within the waves of heat, sending a once lush and well-maintained estate into disarray. Abnormally heavy rains led to constant flooding, the nearby bayou, today known as Blue Bayou by many, nearly rising to overtake a quarter of the grounds, its thick air hanging like a damp rag. It was in these conditions that cholera found its way into the manor. It first found a foothold in one of Gallius's youngest, a three-year-old named Leda, and then one of the maids, Alice, both passing within the first week. Shortly after, it was contracted by Sergei, and then Gallius. Through it all, the mistress of the manor, Elizabeth, fought to keep Gallius and his son alive. In the days throughout, she could be found roaming from room to room, making sure they had everything they needed to fight the sickness and regain their health. But alas, in vain. It was early on the morning of February the 21st that Gallius and his two children were laid to rest within the private burial grounds behind the house. It was early on the morning of February the 23rd that Elizabeth was placed in the family crypt in that same burial ground. Sophia and Martha wept as Yale stood holding onto them. It is said that at Elizabeth's funeral, Yale only said, I have lost my two greatest friends and only in a matter of hours. How is the heart to face the loss of such sacred people? Many nights after, he could be found out amongst the graves, quietly sitting, thinking of better times. In spite of this, and perhaps strengthened by the heartache that bonded them all, the Gracie sisters, in the years that followed, would become the jewels of the Crescent City, smart, well-learned young women whose names were on the tongue of all the most favorable homes in town, thanks in part to the ever-watchful eye of Leota, whom they treated like an elder sister. Much changed in those days. The buildings grew higher and higher. White sails that billowed from the mighty ships in the harbor now became lost behind walls of steam and smoke. Furnaces burned hotter and gears spun faster. Progress had found New Orleans. By 1830, much of the world that Yale had known, the world of cutlass, cannonade, and adventure, had vanished. The blank edges of the map filled in, and at last, old Captain Blood began to find peace. Gone was the young man seeking a fortune. Gone was the sad widower who mourned for brighter days. What remained was a spindly, generous, kind old man with a twinkle in his eye and a pantheon of tales to tell by the fireside. Sophia was naturally the first to marry. Her beauty was common knowledge to all the young men of the surrounding parishes. However, what was not so common knowledge was her enterprising spirit. She wasn't going to marry the first son of a successful farmer to darken her doorstep. She was going to marry somebody. And in the spring of 1832, Somebody showed up. As heir to the Pittsburgh iron magnate Harrison Sr. and the Hightower industry fortune, Harrison Hightower II, or Harry, as Sophia would call him, could afford the world, and he truly wanted to give every bit of it to Sophia. 
Their courtship was nothing short of an extravagant fantasy, as he bestowed her with every comfort and shimmering bauble he could. They were wed in autumn. I could hardly believe the opulence of the scene that laid before me. The entire estate was thronged with people, all turned out in their very best attire, as if the whole of New Orleans had poured into our home to wish dear Sophia their best. It was such a merry day. As we watched from the balcony, I clasped Martha's hand and whispered to her, Our little Blossom is married a prince. What will New Orleans do without her? Leota Zarkov, 1832 As Sophia and Harry journeyed around the world on what would be a six-month-long honeymoon, Martha dutifully stayed behind to watch their father. At his age, much of old Master Gracie's time was relegated to bed rest. As such, this fostered a friendship between Yale and his daughter that had never been there before. He told her of his youth, the strange things he had seen in that old brick house along the Hudson, and of his many years as the dreaded Captain Blood. Shortly after Sophia and Harry's return to the States, Yale's health began to fade. Sophia and Martha did not leave his side from then on. On the morning of July the 9th, 1833, surrounded by his loving daughters, his young son-in-law, his trusted butler Beauregard, and the many generations of the Zarkov family that he had allowed to call Gracie Manor home. Yale faced his final moments. Martha clutched his hand as she let out a gentle sob, Leota resting her hand on Martha's shoulder. Do not cry, please, whispered Gracie. Do not mourn me. I'm going to see my Elizabeth. And then he was gone. That night, Martha took her sister and Leota up into the attic and showed them an old trunk. It contained the crimson flag of Captain Blood, trinkets, weapons, and his many journals and secrets. There, in the moonlight, Martha told them her father's story. Under cover of darkness, the three took the trunk to the edge of the property and watched as the secret of Captain Blood, save for a journal, sank into the muck and mire of the blue bayou. I've often been asked how my fascination with the Gracie family began. Many assume it's the ghost stories I grew up on, and that's only partly the truth. It's a major stop on three different ghost tours of New Orleans and always gets its own chapter in the tourist book, so <laughs> I'd hardly be the first Gracie Manor fan by way of the paranormal. So no, it's not just that I think ghosts are fun. Sometimes it's shock that sticks with a person. The realization of a larger picture. As I said, I did grow up on those ghost stories about the house. There were endless summer nights, I remember, with tales of haunted hallways, and haunted attics, and haunted paintings, and haunted busts. It conjured a vibrant picture in my mind of some horrible and strange place, a gateway of evil that sought to devour me whole. It wasn't until a school field trip that I actually saw Gracie Manor with my own eyes. 
I gripped the seat tightly as the school bus made its way, growing closer and closer. At last we turned the bend and entered the grounds, but it was not the derelict sanctum my mind's eye had imagined. It was a house, just like any other. More than that, though, as I wandered the halls and followed my classmates amongst the graves, this wasn't just a house, it was a home. There were people, once, at some point, somewhere in time, that felt safer here than anywhere else in the world. The sunlight that shined through these same windows warmed and watched the joys and sorrows of someone I'd never know. At what point does a house stop being a home? When did the ghost story set in? And whose is the breath that toppled this house of cards? Next time, we enter the final chapter. That last stand of this ill-fated family. It's also where we at last will meet one of the most important figures in our tale, Miss Constance Hatchaway. It's a chapter of heartbreak, of phantoms, of mysterious circumstances, and, hopefully, answers. All this and more awaits next time on Grimm. This episode is dedicated to the memory of real-life artist, innovator, and imagineer, Yale Gracie, whose life was taken in a random act of violence in 1983. Our hope is that, in giving our fictional Yale a peaceful end, we return what was tragically stolen from him. Our cast this episode featured the voice talents of Ronnie Gross as Mayor Dubois, Nick Barbera as Yale Gracie, Lizzie Potter as Martha Gracie, Brennan Betterly as Sophia Gracie, and Skipper Melody as Leota Zarkov. Associate producer, Josh Lakaitis. Original themes by Aaron Jacob. House of the Rising Sun, arranged by David Rector and performed by Lowe Strung. A very special thanks to Chadwick Moore, Levi Schrope, and Charles Spence. Grimm is a non-profit, unofficial, haunted mansion fiction written by Mason Betterly and inspired by stories, concepts, and actual historical events. It is not in any way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company, nor does it reflect the company's views. 